Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, welcome back to the Investing Summit. Today is day three. It's three for three, so this will be it. Thanks to all of you for your uh, for your audience and certainly your feedback. Uh, it's been a good first two days, and I'm looking forward to getting through uh, some very interesting conversations today. We're actually going to start uh, going back-to-back -back on the short-selling side. Of course, we ended yesterday with Jim Chanos, uh, who's a wily veteran of the trade, and uh, I've done some short-selling myself, of course, and here's one of the more... Uh, I guess somebody that most people would know is, is a professional short seller in Carson Block. So thank you for uh, coming back to, to Hedge Eye TV. We appreciate it. I, I've lost audio. I can't hear you. It, oh, really? We started with audio and it just went progressively down. My audio on his side. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you perfectly. But uh, if you can't hear okay, me. Okay, well. Are we, are we good now? Okay, that's getting better. Okay, good. Um, you know this. This. Um, you know the first. The first thing I want to get into, Carson. I mean, um, you know, we get painted as a lot of different things, right? I mean, uh, you in particular, in this most recent, you know, I guess back and forth that you've had uh, would be maybe an understatement with this gentleman by the name of Mitz. Um, and and I want to get you to you know just walk through you know your your part of the story here. And again, you know, fully loaded with. You know, we, you and I get a lot of pushback. I mean, I, half the research we write are short reports. Uh, I get plenty of pushback, and I'm, I'm actually quite proud of it. Uh, generally speaking, it's good pushback, right? Like, I, I find that we learn a lot about maybe what we don't know. It adds to the research. But once in a while, there's there, <laughs> there's a certain kind of pushback that I, I don't find to be principled in any regard. Um, and, and it looked, to me at least, like in terms of, of your, your fighting back on this, is, is that that was one of the core issues. Sure. So it, it's a little bit of a long story, but basically in January of 2019, I read this article uh, in the Globe and Mail that talked about this law professor at Columbia, um, Josh Metz, and it said that he had been meeting with both the SEC and the Ontario Securities Commission to show them his work that shows that short and distort is pervasive among pseudonymous short activists. And he claims to have studied 1,700 short attacks written by pseudonymous authors on mid-cap and large-cap companies in an eight-year period. And so immediately something struck those of us who are actually in the activist short-selling world as way off base here, because to have 1,700 short reports that you got these from Seeking Alpha written on mid cap and large cap companies is just would be an astounding number because there are very few short activists who can actually swing a bat in the mid cap space. I mean, we're one of the few. And over that eight year period, and I'm sure I could count on two hands the number who can actually do that. So the notion that there were this many reports out there in that space written by only a subset of short activists, the ones who are pseudonymous, in other words, who use a name, but nobody knows who's behind that name, it just struck me as, as way off base. But um, Mitz began doing a lot of media in 2019, and I actually challenged him after I saw him do some TV right after uh, he did the, uh, right after that um, article. I challenged him to a debate and we had a debate. And at the time, I kind of viewed him as, okay, misguided law professor who's seeking truth. And what actually ended up happening was he developed quite, I think, quite a robust consulting practice um, yeah. in this for companies that had been the subjects of short reports. So, I mean, as of a few years ago, he was charging $900 an hour for his services. Wow, that's so, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so in early 2020, we, some of us in the activist short selling space, we were talking about trying to get academics to look at, to evaluate his, his work and 
you know, and, and like help us, you know, with just whatever, like, you know, publish some sort of criticism or critique. Anyway, COVID happened and we just, like, I just dropped the ball. And then in, you know, uh, October of this, this past year, a bunch of us, a lot of activist short sellers and some hedge funds were basically served with subpoenas. Um, then we're, you know, involved in some investigation that looks like it's, and there are roughly like 30 firms on the on the subpoena, and the reporting seems to tie a lot of this investigation back to the work done by Mitz. This notion that he's been peddling to regulators on behalf of his consulting clients that short and distort is widespread. And I finally got his data. He only published it in 2020, even though the original paper he put online in 2018. And it turns out, like in his data set, and nobody had done this work um, even in the peer review process because he's facile with math given that he has a PhD in finance but he's peer reviewed by lawyers who generally know like fuck all about math <laughs> anyway in his spreadsheet he's got you know probably 50 columns there's a column coding whether the author is short and of the 1720 articles He's only got 21% of the authors coded as having been short. So he purported to study short selling and short attacks, you know, and, and concluded there's market manipulation, but the vast majority of his data set doesn't even have a position in the stock. So like, wow. how can you be manipulating a market without an economic incentive? And so to me, this rises to the level of fraudulent misrepresentation of what he studied, but there are lots of other problems in the in in his paper and the way he interpreted the data set. That's just like the first one that you run into. But yeah, um, you know, we are where we are, and um, we're going to go where we're going to go. That's really <laughs> all I can say. Well, where is it going to go? I mean, everywhere that I looked, at least, and maybe I'm the one who needs to do more research. I mean, dug dug deep enough, at least with the time that I had. The guy, the guy doesn't feel. I mean, certainly doesn't see the need to be transparent or accountable to comment on this, um, or at least hasn't. Uh, in terms of what I uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that is that is that where we're at? He doesn't want to comment on what you've said or or written. Well, so when Dealbook wrote about this and they broke bad news or via my quote, you know, one thing that's a bit frustrating is no reporter has has downloaded the data and just confirmed this. So it's always Carson Block says, you know, whereas this is something that's easily verifiable. But anyway, the um, the journalist went to Mitz and said, well, Carson Block says that you coded only 20.8% as having a short position. So what do you have to say to that? <laughs> and his response was, well, the rest could be lying. So, what the so hell? Yes. I mean, like, how do you argue with that? I mean, it's um, it's an interesting, you know, like subject and case study given the times. You know, these are uh, interesting times, suffice to say, when it comes to truth telling and biases and officialdom. Um, is this is it fair to say that this is officialdom's guy? Well, so so look, I think there there are a bunch of things to unpack here, but. Um, I think one one issue that this really shows me is that society has a dysfunctional relationship with academia. I think that unless you're in a, a leading, uh, unless you're an academic in a leading edge subject of study, something involving technology, for example, everything that could be said has pretty much been said. So because it's a publish or perish environment, in order to publish, you have to move further away from, you know, the mainstream mainstream thought and more on, on the margins and publish things that are just maybe not that based in reality. And it's not that that's without value, right? Like that can expand our perspectives and help us as a society see things differently. But we put so much credence in work that's produced by academics and we we seem to believe that they are these uh, do-gooder truth seekers, and we you know we discount that they have the same human foibles the rest of us have, including short sellers. There's greed for money. There's greed for attention and ego. You know they have they have the same set of motivations in many respects that we do. But we get accused of as short sellers of manipulation 
Um, and people don't usually turn around and look at and point the finger at academics and say, yeah, like you're, you've just turned yourself into like a media prostitute and, you know, you're using this to boost your career. And it's like horrific research. So hmm. society does need to be a little more jaundiced in how we look at academia. Well, I mean, it's uh, Jim Chano said this yesterday. I don't know if you saw my conversation with him, but uh, his immediate reaction when I named a few names uh, on a certain subject was, why does anyone care about who? Why do we always start with who? Like in terms of like who said it, who wrote it, who owned it, and why don't we focus more on how? Like how does this actually work? How, you know, why does this make sense? Why is this not true? And I thought it was a very astute, uh, albeit you know, simplifying the complex type point that 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 Chanos made. And I think that that applies. I mean, I could say this to this dude Mitz, or I could say this about any jackass at the Federal Reserve who you know poppycocks says knowing everything about markets and has never traded one. I mean, so you know, you have this really interesting time where officialdom is also. Well, that's just you know I, there are plenty of people in officialdom that are competent, by the way, um, but. They don't have to be criticized like Carson Block is, right? Like, ostensibly, this guy wouldn't have been revealed unless you went right at him uh, or have others. Well, that's, I mean, look, uh, so the conversations I had with a couple of academics before COVID, you know, they, they both said, uh, you know, but I don't want to say anything publicly. You know, most academics are just yeah. scared shitless of controversy. Um, only the, the bad ones seem to not be scared shitless. But and one other thing that was also kind of interesting, and you know, at one point we're talking with legal counsel and said, well, you know, we should get somebody from academia to you know make a presentation if the need arises, you know, to the powers that be and explain the trading. And you know, and I, I asked, I said, well, you know, we so why are we trying to counter one ivory tower? you know, knows nothing about how things work in practice, academic, with another ivory tower, knows nothing about how <laughs> And I said, why don't we get somebody who's actually traded shit for a living? Yeah. And what I was told is that, you know, the, like the agencies are just not impressed with people who've actually done it. They want academics. Like, and it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's like, do you want to learn how things work? I mean, it doesn't that help in the search for the truth, but... No, they just want like you know one academic on the payroll against another academic on the payroll. It's I don't know. It, well, it's I mean it, it, process. It's um you know again it's it's at the epicenter of what you know our own demographer Neil Howe calls the fourth turning, where you have the officialdom starts to crack, shake, break, and then is just outright not trusted. So it's not like this is a far-reaching topic that goes right down to the academics, you know, in in the medical field to legal to everything and you know to me the future has always been i mean this is you know partly you know the vision of hedge is to put it all out there you know a hundred percent transparent and accountable like if carson block and this has happened to you i mean it's not like you take offense to it but if you come out with a short report on something that we have a model and an opinion we're going to have an opinion about the the quality of your work the integrity of your work the depth of your work you know and you don't seem to mind there are others you know, that really get rattled because they are actually, whatever this guy called it, short and distort. That would be like uh, a kind way of putting it. You know, the, the quality of their short selling, quote unquote, research is fucking garbage. Like, it's like terrible. It's just like clickbait and they're getting paid like in a four hour window and that's kind of it. And we've had to reveal some of those too. So I just threw a lot there. But what do you think about that? Like every other industry, okay, Activision short selling has you know, top tier, middle tier, and then a tier guys who are doing things badly and maybe even illegally. But it's like looking at equity long short and saying, well, we found some insider traders here, so that must mean that everybody in uh, long short equity is trading on inside information. Um, so unfortunately, I think as Activist short sellers, we wear the sins of that bottom tier much more so than in other professions because everybody is so naturally just skeptical of short sellers and skeptical of skeptics, really. So that's something that does bother me. And I, I spoke, I, I met like several months ago and before the whole thing broke as far as I was concerned with a sitting SEC commissioner um, whom I approached just to say, hey, look, I'd like to talk about short selling, et cetera. And, you know, we, we ended up talking about 
how there are some bad actors in activist short selling. And I made the point that, look, a bunch of us have been sitting around for a few years waiting for this guy to be taken out and that guy and that one. <laughs> and it hasn't happened. And right. now the, the commissioner said to me, well, why don't you do something about it? And, you know, my question was, what am, what am I supposed to do about that? Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're just trying to, you know, like we have enough on our fight on our plate starting fights with very well resourced public companies, you know, as opposed to making this like a, you know, just an intra, you know, an intra group squabble, which by the way, there are enough of those and everybody's sick of that shit too. So, um, yeah, that's, but you know, like there are probably people who are problems in this space, but you know, like when you're investigating 30 different entities in a really small industry, I mean, it's a substantial majority of relevant activist short sellers. Like, I don't know, man. Like, really? Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, um, again, there's peer review. I mean, if you don't, it's already being reviewed. Like, I call up 10 clients and show him our review of your research. They're going to read it, you know? that mm -hmm. This is already happening. You know, like, so you don't, I mean, it, to, to me at least, it's, it's, it's if you want to come up with, like, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys, you don't have to look very far. I mean, you know, so, and like you said, like, it's not your job to be revealing them, but when the guy with the job is every bit, it's almost like, I, I think you, I mean, you, you had some great one-liners here, by the way. You, you write really well. <laughs> so, when you, in, in the institutional investor piece, this is, this is what Block said when he was debunking Mitt's um, research. And again, that's, that's exactly what we do. We debunk Carson Block's research, uh, or anybody for that matter. Um, as a non-empirical, conflict-laden, polemic based on misrepresentation, selective presentation of data, and a lack of academic integrity. I mean, I don't think anyone in officialdom wants to be called that, ever. Yeah, it's, well, and again, like, yeah, we're, it's funny because the reaction that I've had from academics is that they felt that it was that it was too uh, that it that it was too much uh, too ad hominem to be considered credible in academic circles, and you know it's just it's like guys, I don't know, man. This maybe it's because it's holding up a mirror to academia and and calling out the conflicts of interest that so many academics end up having because they they're dependent on people for donations or consulting work. Maybe that's what the problem is, but um, yeah, they might. You know, they, the academics who talk to me, they say they agree with the substance, but they think that the tone was too ad hominem, and therefore it's not yeah, being taken it's as like, come on. As it it's like ad hominem. This is like, I didn't even know what those two words together meant till I came to America and went to a school that probably came up with that. I mean, in terms of like, that's your primary line of defense. How about, I'm from Thunder Bay, Ontario. You're full of shit. Like, that's... That's not ad hominem. That's me talking to you the way that I would if you if you came in. I have some unique experience with this in the last year, where somebody stole my shit, and I say you're full of shit. <laughs> it's like this is. I think to me, it's very obvious. You know, whether you look at Twitter Spaces or any place where there has to be a debate uh, or, or a real conversation, was we, we like to call it amongst real people. To me, that's where officialdom is is cracking, and not just cracking, but really breaking down, and obviously so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think look, we obviously have a lot of problems with institutions in America with officialdom, as you put it. Um, you know, stuff is highly complex, but, you know, it's, you know, I, there, there are good reasons why people have lost and continue to lose faith in the system and institutions. But by the same token, I don't believe we, have, we should throw these things out. I just no. have to be fixed. But, you know, we... But there are certain obvious things, and there are lots of things that are less obvious in terms of how you'd approach it. All right. Well, I think uh, we've said our piece on this. I'm sure we'll come you know, in and out of it. But you, know, you can blow this out to Russia. Let's try that. Um, you know, again, whether it's virtue signaling or whatever, what do you think, um, do, or do you think the world changed on, 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 on that event, uh, you know, on, on a lot of the things that we're already talking about here? Yeah, I, I actually do. I, I'm, I mean... Look, assuming things kind of stay the course, I think this will be a really interesting period of time for sociologists to study in the future because what happened within a very short period of time is that the West 
has thrown out basically 30 years of our economic and social playbook, which is basically nothing should get in the way of like Steve Schwartzman doing deals or the NBA selling shit. Um, and, you know, what we'll, we'll do is we'll make all kinds of moral compromises. And but, you know, we're not going to actually as, as Western countries, we're not going to do anything substantive that would improve the world potentially while pushing back or while curtailing the ability of our corporates to do business. And that really changed in a short period of time with Russia and Ukraine, where look, the, the Europeans are obviously still buying, um, you know, mad gas and, and oil from Russia, but they're bearing some pain. We're all bearing some pain. And a decision was made that, you know what, standing up and for Ukraine and trying to get Russia out of Ukraine is the right thing. And we will pay, we will bear some cost. We will bear some pain in order to do that. And that, I, I think that shocks Putin, that shocks China, that shocks just about everybody that the West has been able to take this cohesive stand um, and based on morality. And so the interesting thing there is, but what are the implications for markets? I mean, assuming that we hold, that we, that we start really, you know, that we hold this principle that we're willing to do something that's long-term good, that's based on you know real morality, but that is not helpful to business. Um, that that probably will have real implications for markets. And mm -hmm. the first thing I think about is ESG investing. But what might be a little contrarian here is I think it'll be really bad for ESG investing because what ESG investing is, as we know it, it's just you said it. It's like virtue signaling. I call it the the paper straw coming out of like my plastic drink cup with a plastic lid that just makes the drink taste <laughs> shitty and obviously doesn't like stop you know me from like throwing more plastic into the world. So that's what ESG investing has been. It's it's been just really in that vein of you know we we want substance over form. But if we want uh, sorry if we want form over substance. But if we now want substance over form, that's a that's a different ball game. Yeah, big time. I mean, so is that uh, new and happy hunting ground for you on the short side? ESG, through flows alone, I mean, Mike Green would explain this succinctly, and, and a lot of people wonder how the Nikolas of the world or whatever, like, like Nikola literally took a took a took a vehicle and rolled it down a hill and said that it worked. Like, I mean, there are plenty of like flows that have flowed into ESG strategies, ESG funds that have kept stocks afloat you know, throughout the bubble period. Uh, of the most recent couple of years, but is that what you're saying? You're, you, it's 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 happier hunting season to go after things that were bullshit to begin with. Well, I mean, look from a short perspective, I, I think it's hard to say what the the universe of short opportunities is going to be going forward because the way that I view things is, you know, we're at a bookend, or we've, you know, the, the bookend maybe occurred last year, Q3 or Q4 of the QE forever era. And I don't know what the new paradigm or I don't have a view on what the new paradigm is going to be. But um, I have made the observation, I really believe this to be true, that there is an inverse correlation between interest rates and honesty. So if rates are going up, honesty is going to go up. Hmm. And you and you could think to yourself, well, that's bad for short sellers. But the flip side of that is because what we've seen since I've been doing this in 2010 between 2010 and 20 and 2021, um, you've had these companies that these behaviors that were confined previously to like the micro cap and nano cap space, you've had them become small cap or even mid cap companies just by virtue of market cap inflation. And so if we have higher rates, those market caps deflate, those behaviors go back to micro cap, nano cap world for the most part. So you might look at that and say that's bad for us. But at the same time that was happening, investors on the long side who cared about risk were not being remunerated for caring about risk. And, you know, like today, you know, they, or they became a punchline by 2021, you know, value investors. And um, if we're going into a higher rate environment, then long investors who do pay attention to risk and who care about the quality of earnings and, and behaviors by management that could be tells as to something serious going on, those, there are going to be more investors doing that. So it's going to be easier 
to get investors to care about the risks that we can identify in the mid cap space or the small cap space. Yep. So I, I think that there's, at least in my business, I think that there, there's always a balance, right? Like if, if nobody cares about risks, these horrible operators that previously were only micro cap operators now have mid caps. Yep. Um, so I, I feel okay about the future pool of shortable pieces of shit. <laughs> well, the pool is getting bigger uh, the further we get into this. It's not just, inter- that's a great, I, I love that. Interest rates up, honesty goes up. Well, it's also credit spreads widen and honesty widens uh, widens out and, and the market caps come into Carson Block's sweet spot because the market, I mean, it's amazing to watch. I mean, I tell my analysts all the, all the time when we're short something, it's like just because it got cut in half, it could get cut in half two or three times here. I mean, this is not... Uh, this is not going to stop going down you know, when the company has literally no cash flows. So um, on that point, uh, you know, Chanos made this point yesterday. He, he, he has, his one-liner is uh, legal fraud. And yeah. in, you know, another way to think about interest rates going up is that you don't have all these TAM stocks or limitless you know, market opportunities with no profits. And, and he, you know, he, he, it makes his his simple answer was, yeah, the fraud the fraud follows the bubble bursting because the SEC doesn't pay enough attention until the bodies are floating to the surface and people get hurt. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, look, I I agree with all those things, and I, I think it's worth also what Jim calls legal fraud. Um, you know, there there's so many behaviors in this world that are technically legal but are intellectually fraudulent. And look, we have, you know, in tying in with, you know, officialdom, I mean, we have a government, and I think most Western countries have a government that fits this description, which is, it is by lawyers for lawyers. And so with all of these lawyers, this ample supply of lawyers, um, people are able to do things that they really shouldn't be doing, but in a way where there's no legal liability. And to me, that is the more insidious problem that the world faces than the outright dishonesty in terms of you know violation of law because that legal fraud as jim calls it or that you know where you're violating the spirit of the law but not the letter of the law that is so pervasive and right. it, i would argue it's norm in our society so that that does become harder to do as rates go up i said before inverse correlation it's a it's a correlation uh between honesty and, and rates um yeah. But yeah, I, I th- so that, that does become harder to do, but that, that goes back to my point that long side investors care more about risks, you know, even whether it's a, you know, an illegal behavior or not, they'll care more about risks when money, when capital is more dear. Yeah, I mean, this is what uh, MITs and everybody in officialdom should be focused on. I mean, when you have, you know, like like you see, trick, trickery and deceit or any kind of like misinformation on how you're reporting gap earnings, and, and, the, and the stock eventually gets cut in half twice, a lot more people get hurt that way than you writing a short report on a company. If it's true, by the way, it's going to be true. If it's not true, it's not true. It's not like you're, you're, you're hurting people over the long duration, but when you lose... 50, 60, 80, 100% of your capital, you're not coming back from that. Yeah. Look, with, with us, eight of the companies that we've reported on were subsequently delisted by regulators. Um, others have, last year, the DOJ actually got a $1.8 billion judgment in its favor that when you look at its original criminal complaint, they credit a report that we had written in 2015 right. with originally the investigation and therefore the award. So. I mean, there, there's ample evidence in the real world, incontrovertible evidence that a lot of activist short sellers, a lot of critics are pointing out behaviors that are seriously problematic. And when you look at the delistings there, again, my, my point, and I think probably what Jim was saying is that fraud from a legal perspective is only a fraction of the things that are intellectually fraudulent, but not, but don't cross the line legally. So when yep. you look at us having delistings, I mean, there are lots of other companies that we warned on, not that we're breaking the law, I mean, companies like eHealth, where the, they were, it was all legal, but the accounting was so super misleading, or Noble Group, which used to be huge commodities trading house, and that went BK. So there, we have lots and lots of those as well, and I think most good activist short sellers have that too. So, yeah, and every now and then, even, like, I think it's 
it's also worth remembering that being right and making money are not necessarily the same things. So even when we haven't made money um, on something that we're short, you know, I don't think that we're necessarily wrong about the facts. We, we could be wrong as to whether they matter or, you know, or to the extent that they matter, but it's hard to be wrong about facts. And that's really what activist short selling is. It's dealing with historical facts as opposed to future projections. Yeah. I mean, um, in, in as much as, you know, the, the, the interest rate to honesty parallel is true. I mean, the cycle turning like it is right now, the economic cycle, the credit cycle, the profit cycle, which is all the same thing, you know, that really, you know, getting back to being right or getting paid, that just helps us get paid faster. Because again, the lies can't and the storytelling can't keep up with the pace of people coming, you know, coming to realize the truth. And that to me is a real, you know, it might sound perverse, but I mean, I, I quite get excited about that because a lot of people, Jay Van Skyver, who runs our industrial research business, he always says, look, Wall Street's in the business of, of doing one thing, selling stock. And um, that's true. Like, there should, be a, there, there should be a lot more people that think about that, <laughs> it that way instead of, like, I've, I've, I've allegedly analyzed 1,700 um, you know, reports, which he, the guy didn't do, and, and say nothing about it anyway. Um, I, 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 just, I just think it's a really interesting time on that front. You're probably going to... If you aren't already, I assume you're doing really well this year, uh, or certainly in the last, you know, since the story stock bubble started popping. Um, how about the Chinese one? Uh, you know, that's <laughs> that's got some issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's funny because for years I had predicted that if the U.S. really drew a hard line in the sand on the auditor inspections, that yeah. at the eleventh hour China would back down. But then last year it seemed like just because the relationship between China and U.S. had deteriorated so much that he would not allow himself to be seen by a domestic audience as having caved to America on this issue. And so I, I felt like what was going on with um, some of these companies from China last year um, was that, the, you know, basically Xi's government was firing warning shots at all of the U.S. listed China companies saying, hey, you're going to be delisted, so you should start thinking about, you know, how you can get listings outside of the U.S., like listing in Hong Kong or listing yep. on domestic mainland exchanges. Well, shit, they're all the same thing now. I mean, Hong Kong, there is no Hong Kong anymore. But um, anyway, but now we're hearing the, or we're seeing these headlines that China is oh, trying to find a way um, it'll be interesting. I mean, I really hope that we don't lose our backbone on this and we don't allow them to bamboozle us for the whatever time because we're fighting the last war, right? The auditor inspections aren't the main issue. At the beginning, in the, I think in March of 2020, a revised securities law of the PRC went into effect and it had this new article in it that prohibits any entity or individual in China from cooperating with an investigation by an overseas regulator, even if that investigation relates to con, well, would obviously uh, relate to conduct in that foreign market. So what, you know, they took what was basically rumored to have been the case um, that there were, that people could go to prison in China if they cooperated with the SEC or PCAOB, and they codified that in writing. And that's really what, you know, like that's really what we should also be drawing the line in the sand over. Like, you need to get rid of that. You need to change the unofficial policy. And individuals and entities in China need to show that they are routinely cooperating with U.S. Inve investigations. But they'll they'll never do that, obviously. <laughs> well, in the meantime, you know, there's a lot of work to do and some money to be made. A fair amount of money. To be made. You're, you're, well, you're you know, the Chinese the Chinese stocks here are so badly manipulated, though. I shouldn't say they're bad. They're manipulated well. Um, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're really good at that. <laughs> yeah, it's like in 2010 when I started doing this, the Chinese were the least market savvy people there were, right? Like we would come out with reports or other short activists and, you know, these guys would be like deers and deer in the headlights. Like, what's this? Why is the stock down? <laughs> There's so much sophistication in China yep. right now, especially manipulating stocks algorithmically. It's... It's unreal. I mean, GSX is the most extreme or the most obvious example, but I can't tell you how many small pieces of piece of shit stocks from China, 
like we've looked at over the years or been short over the years. And they're just, it's not trading anywhere close to how it should be trading. Like if things were, if things were natural. And this is something I've tried to make this point to people in the, in the U.S. government, which is I believe that there's a systematic program to, or not a program that there's its policy in China to encourage various actors to undermine U.S. capital markets by manipulating stocks. Um, it makes, it makes China wealthier, you know, the China companies wealthier. It makes individual Chinese who are, of course, you know, tithing unto Caesar there. It makes all of them wealthier, but it also undermines the lifeblood of our economy. So I, I suspect that there's a lot of shit and really what, what would be needed to root that out is people who have serious data analytic expertise, data science expertise, like NSA level, working at the SEC and going back to how officialdom works and doesn't work, that's not going to happen because even if the SEC had the budget to pay those people, they would hate it because they'd be in an agency run by lawyers and with a few accountants around who are the accountants the lawyers can tolerate. So I'm not optimistic that we're going to have a way um, anytime soon to really detect this this manipulation that I feel is is pervasive and certainly do anything about it. Yeah, it's definitely part of the cyber warfare plan and it's you know they're very effective at it. I I, I agree with that 100%. Um, we'll get into some some of the questions from from the audience if you have questions for Carson um, ask them and they'll get voted up or down in the queue. Just one other question uh, just tying the Asian loop together because it caught it catches the attention, I think. And, and again, it's not like you're just like short everything in the entire world. You you, you opened an office in Vietnam, did you not? Yeah, no, we, we, we just opened an office in Vietnam. And the idea there is to do long side investing because I've obviously been very skeptical and cynical of China for you know, a long time. And so two years ago, um, I, I formed the, you know, two years ago I saw as COVID was hitting, that this is the biggest geopolitical realignment since World War II that is, that is kicking off with COVID or really accelerating with COVID. And, and, you know, obviously Ukraine and Russia are, you know, are further, they're dominoes that have fallen, uh, as part of this realignment. But, um, I came up with the, I developed a thesis that a lot of, and this was already happening, but a lot of the incremental FDI flows were going to be directed away from China coming out of COVID and wanted to understand, well, where would the, you know, who would the beneficiaries be, who'd be on the losing end of this? And after, after a lot of thoughtful research, we came upon the single biggest beneficiary relative to its economy and the size of its markets, it will probably be Vietnam. Hmm. And, you know, Vietnam is a frontier market, but it's, it's close, you know, it should be upgraded to EM in the next few years. And um, our our brand our in our deep dive research process our brand there, I think that puts us in a great position to do stuff in Vietnam and to, to capitalize on this on this thesis or this theme that we have. That's I, I love that. The um, when I was at Carlisle, I was looking at um, I was in, back in '07. We were looking at. It wasn't realignment. It was just like inefficiently researched equities. And, and Vietnam was, I remember doing a bunch of work our team did on Vietnam beer. Um, easy one. And <laughs> it was just, it was, it, was, it was borderline shocking, you know, like how little due diligence and research had, had been done. So again, like you're, you know, basically for all of you watching us for the first time, I mean, we're, we're not dissimilar from investigative journal, journalists or however you think, you think about it. Like we should be able to go both ways. Uh, we're not bad people. We're trying to find people that are actually not telling the truth, which I think is being, you know, it's not like Carson Block and I are going to be, you know, named to the papacy, but I mean, uh, the, <laughs> at least I won't. I mean, this Irish Catholic. I, I can assure you, I will. <laughs> No, this Irish Catholic swears far too more, uh, too much for that. But um, yeah, I thought that I've, I've, I think that's a great the idea. Irish Catholics do <laughs> All right, I'm gonna jump into. Uh, I think we have. Yeah, we still have ten minutes, so I'll get into um, some other people's questions here uh, in the queue. Um, what's uh, let's see here. Um, 
Oh, this is a, a general market question, which I should have asked, should have asked anyway. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Nate from Vancouver. Um, Carson, what's your view of the current market and outlook going forward? And are there any sectors that represent more promising short selling opportunities? You already mentioned ESG, obviously. Yeah, and, and so look, I, it's a great question. Um, unfortunately, I am not a I don't have macro perspectives very, you know, at least to that level of detail. As I said, we're, we're clearly transitioning to a new paradigm. Whatever that new paradigm is going to be, I just don't feel strongly enough about it to have a view. I mean, one question that I'm, I ask myself, um, is, well, what if in the new paradigm, you know, we get double digit inflation, so we get double digit interest rates, but that double digit nominal interest rates, but real rates are still negative. Like, what's that do to asset markets? I, I don't really have a view on that. And I'm not even saying that I think that that's going to be the case. But, um, for me right now, there's just, there's a lot of uncertainty there, um, in terms of what the environment will be. But, you know, from perspective of my business, I mean, we're very surgical in what we do. It's very much about the individual companies. Um, but yeah, I, I suspect that if we really do care about substance over form going forward, you know, ESG will, especially the E stuff will probably be devalued and maybe there'll be a lot more emphasis on G because mm-hmm. um, that's one of the ironies of ESG investing is that the companies that score high on E usually score the absolute worst on G. So um, maybe that'll invert in the new paradigm. That's I, that, that makes a lot of sense. The um Here's here's an interesting question. It's going to get a. It's this. Some of these are getting upvotes, Carson, because our audience knows names that we're either short or we've refuted short reports. One interesting one, and this this is this question's got a lot of votes, uh, has to do with what happened with Mountain Pass, and and I don't know if you paid attention to that or not, but you know this. It's, it's, the question is, what's up with that kind of smash and grab? Type strategy, <laughs> like our our you know our analysts came out right away and 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 to the point that we started with, like said that this is just like shit research, like that's you know and it literally huge volume day stock literally only went up from there. Um, I don't know if that example or another one. What do you think about the, uh, stuff like that? I mean, again, there there are going to be bad actors in every space. Um, look, the the person who has you know, seemingly popularized smash and grab as a descriptor of um, behavior in the activist short world is, you know, I it hasn't caught on as much, but my moniker for his behavior is fail and set sail. Um, I, you know, but like the, the, the short termists are, are always going to be around. Um, but people who people in firms who have been around a while, and their and, and their brands exist, and they're you know, and they're I mean, they're clearly thinking about the long term. I mean, those are you know, those are people and firms to which the market should give more credence. If it's somebody who's brand new, um, you've never heard of the you've never heard of the firm, doesn't mean you should dismiss the research. But you know, like wait wait to see. Are they coming back with more yeah. with more research? Do they seem? I mean, you you have to. But one, one thing that people in general don't do anymore is read. So <laughs> when you guys, you know, you guys analyze these reports, so you're reading them. But a lot of times if you read the reports, I mean, you can tell what's quality and what's not quality. If it's, you know, based on the, the, the supposed facts that somebody's, you know, fifth cousin once worked for Arthur Anderson, you know, like, dismiss it. I mean, you know. It's kind of, I mean, to, to, if I were you, I'd be insulted with that, with those types of players getting the audience that they, they get. I mean, everything is as loud as, we're at max in terms of noise. Uh, this morning I was citing, you know, the, the Danny Kahneman book, which is titled Noise. And again, with these echo chambers and meme machines and Twitter and everything else, I mean, people like, like Hindenburg Research got a, a lot of, a lot of attention in very short order. I don't even know who they are. I mean, like, do you know who they are, the people there? Yeah, but you know, but you know what's interesting about that is, so Nate Anderson is the principal there. He was grinding it out as a short activist for several years before he hit with Nicola. Like they, I mean, he, the New York Times did a great profile on him, um, I think a little over a year ago. And he was, I mean, he was about to get evicted 
at one point. Really? Like, as when he was trying to build his activist short selling business. Like this is a very difficult business. I think yeah. people don't understand the extent of the difficulty in short activism and breaking through and establishing yourself. But like kudos to him. He kept yep. his head down. He kept putting out reports. He kept his business together. And then eventually, you know, Jim had his Enron. I had my Sino Forest. Andrew Left had his Valiant. Nate had Nicola. Yep. And, you know, and like it's and it's been, you know, and then it's been like a rocket ship ever since. But that, but that's a great example of how it's a hard fucking business, yep. and there is so much noise. And yeah, maybe you know, maybe the guys who are shouting at the top of their lungs on Seeking Alpha about like this is the worst thing ever, you know, maybe they drown out guys like the you know Nate Anderson pre Nicola. Um, but you know, it's just like, look, man, we you know our business is. <laughs> I mean, there's the First Amendment here, so you can't really. <laughs> shut people down for just, you know, just because they're screaming loudly, you know, if they're not telling the truth or they're making things up or exaggerating, you know, then yes, they've crossed the line. But, um, but it, it's, you know, it's not like you can, it's not like anybody needs a license or a permit to speak their mind in this country. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, to be the fact that when you have these bad actors, as I said earlier, we in this industry, I think where their sins you know, far more so than other industries, um, you know, where people at the top and middle tiers, uh, where the sins are the lowest tiers. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, like, I, I think if there are ever questions about the quality of the research, like read the research. Yeah. I think it's usually self-evident what is the garbage and what's not. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. Like, like I, like basically for 15 years now, um, through this Hedgeye platform, you guys force us to do work, right? Like Hindenburg, no, nobody incrementally, I, I, I genuinely don't know who, I don't know them personally is what I meant by that. Um, it, but that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything about quality of research, that's for sure. Um, as soon as they say something, or as soon as you obviously say something, my analyst has to go to work. Like, because there's credibility in it, right? That's it. But you know, like, I think it's also important to take a few steps back here and, and look at this, because pre-internet, Okay, there was no way that somebody like me could break through and get my view out there um, over the voice of, say, Goldman Sachs. Right. Right. The Internet really democratized research in reporting on, on companies. And that's a great thing that's because right. there are all of these people who have just contrary ways of looking at things who never, ever could have been heard. But, you know, so on the whole, this is a good there's some bad you have to take with that good. Mm-hmm. But again, like it should not malign an entire industry when that happens. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I, and maybe this is a, we're running out of time here, and maybe that's it's my last question. I think I asked you this last time too, but don't we need better branding? Like short sellers. Like, like it's just, is there a way? Can we, can we just be in, you know, risk, you know, hedge eye risk management? We're risk managers. We are investigative journalists. Ida Tarbell took down, you know, Standard Oil. You know, that's going all the way back. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with her. You know, look, the, it, it's a really interesting point um, on the comparison to investigative journalists because that's how I look at activist short selling. It's investigative journalism with a different revenue model. P.S. The only revenue model that works in the, in, in terms of investigative financial journalism, like nobody, there's never in or in today's age, there's no way that a mainstream media organization can make money directly on investigative financial journalism. And one of the things that's so frustrating is because you know we get sued a lot. There's always this skepticism to overcome on the part of uh, judge, judges' natural skepticism toward us because we were short, that they would not have that skepticism toward a reporter. And if you go back or what is, you know, a traditional journalist, and if you go back to what I was saying before about how when it comes to academics, we don't, and we don't recognize that they suffer from the same human foibles the rest of us do. You know, when you say, well, these guys are short of stock, so they have an incentive to say to say these things uh, that are that are not true or to exaggerate them. I mean, it's just it really cheapens. It's just a really cheap way of doing analysis 
because you know re reporters would have many of the same incentives. They're not going to make the money directly on an article that we can make, but everybody cares about their. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but reporters have you know they they want their ego stroked in many cases. They want high profiles. They they want you know to book deals, movie deals, TV shows. Um, so it's I think it's really intellectually lazy and dishonest to just class short sellers alone as having this motivation to exaggerate or you know or or lie that nobody else in the marketplace talking about companies has you know would be so motivated. That's it's not true and it's just lazy. <laughs> not true. Lazy. These are these are things a lot of people really care about, and I do think you know it's not just the internet. Now you're on a live feed here, you and I, for 50 minutes back and forth. We're not evil doers, you know. Again, I think you know bringing putting faces uh, to names and and being open and transparent and accountable. We don't we certainly don't get everything right. Uh, but what I love about this conversation and, and thanks for having it was you just taking the time and having the courage to go after officialdom. I mean, they should be investigated every bit as much as corporates should be, and you use the same process. So um, on behalf of, like, uh, you know, Hedge Eye Nation and everybody who likes to seek the truth, thank you for that. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks. He's Carson Block. That's a great conversation, isn't it? I, at least I thought, I thought it was going to be, and it was. Uh, up next, my man, Jim Bianco. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedge Eye. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Eye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.